Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday night. This is episode 21 of season five on the Deep Dive Bible Study. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 11. We're going to get there in just a moment. Yes, like I just said, episode 21, season five. We've been going through chapters 9 through 11 in Romans. We've been talking about God's work uh, in Israel's history as part and parcel of his redemption purposes in the world. How do we look at these very strange chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, and unpack them for our reality as Christians today? There's a lot that we have already learned through Romans 9 and 10, and it's just getting really good here in the first part of Romans 11. Uh, as usual, the only thing that I ask for you to do is this. Like, subscribe, share, hit that notification bell. Let, let Be let known. Be let known. Be informed. Be notified. There we go. Be let known about when we go live on your smartphone or uh, tablet device or whatever you use to uh, access the YouTube channel. Again, Tim Hatch Live. YouTube.com slash Tim Hedge Live. Welcome in. Let's open up in prayer, then we'll get to Romans. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you'll speak, and we will hear, including myself, Lord. Your word is life. Your word is powerful. And the gospel, we know, is the power of God unto salvation. Save us and continue to save us until you finally save us. In Jesus' name, amen. What a beautiful day it is to study the Bible. Anyway, welcome back again. Well, the, we're going to go right up to the Romans 9 to 11 outline, just to give you again another kind of contextual insight into where we are in this three-chapter passage. We've already talked about Israel's past election, uh, God's sovereignty in election, God's sovereignty in salvation. We talked about Israel's present rejection. What is God doing, holding people accountable for their rejection of him? How does God's sovereign election and man's rejection go together? And we talked about the fact that that, my friends, is above our pay grade. He says, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And shall that which is made say to the potter, why did you make me like this? And on and on and on it goes in Romans chapter 10. So reconciling God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, the best theologians in the world have never reconciled those things because they are irreconcilable this side of heaven, okay? And then, finally, we get to Romans chapter 11. That's today, and we're only going to get a few chap few verses in because this chapter is very important because we have to remember that God has a plan for Israel. Now, by me saying that, those of you who are very deep theologians, okay, you some of you have already just written me off just because I just said that. God has a future plan, a future restoration for Israel in the last days. We're already starting to see it come to pass and I'm really excited to share with you the content today about where Israel is in, in Israel's in um, redemption history right now and how what we are seeing, and I referred to this last week, how what we are seeing now is a little bit of a precursor. We've already seen the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. We've already seen the the missionary endeavors of Christians to the Jewish people in Israel start to take root and grow in success. I've been to Israel myself, and even since I've been 2018, those evangelistic efforts have ramped up exceedingly. And um, this is exciting. These are exciting times for God's people. But we want to just remind you that the reality of salvation is always somewhat of a mystery for us this side of heaven. That 
God has this funny way of being God and choosing those that we would not choose, rejecting those that we would choose, right? And we talked about this quick reminder from last week as my friend Tal, hey Tal, shared on his Instagram story. I'm always watching. If you guys tag me in Instagram story, you get a like. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. But he said, but he shared this last week. In Christ, the culture's script is always flipped. The insiders are out. The outsiders are in. The giants lose and the underdogs win. <laughs> Okay, it's a rhyme. But anyway, it's pretty cool. So we're going to get into Romans chapter 11 because Romans chapter 11 unpacks for us how God is still working in and through the nation of Israel. Their rejection is not total. It is not permanent. And it has a purpose. And all that is going to be unpacked today. So let's get into what it meant. A little bit of a stutter on my video. I don't know if that's what you experienced, but I did. Anyway, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, God, Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. And you know, Paul always does this. He does these fantastic question and answers uh, to, is kind of his rhetoric to debate or to teach. Has God rejected his people? And he always asks a question himself. And then he, you know, me, uh, me ganito, which is like the most stringent form of rejecting a premise uh, in the Greek language. So absolutely not is what he's saying. For I myself and an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, what is Paul speaking to? Remember the context back in Romans chapter 10. Okay, let me put that on the, let me put that on the Bible cam, shall we? Romans chapter 10. If we go there. Remember that he had been talking about the fact that Israel... That God says of Israel, last verse of Romans chapter 10, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, so Israel is in this present state of rejection right now. And God, Paul has been talking about, sorry, the hardness of Israel toward God, their rejection of him. Okay, so the obvious question is, well then, has God rejected them completely? Since they reject him, has he rejected them? No, no. Now why, dear 21st century Christian, is this question and answer so important. Why? Because it is fabulously important. It is immensely important. If God rejects Israel, then God cannot be trusted. Cannot be trusted. Period. Why? Because God makes and keeps his promises and the one people to whom he made the most promises to was the people of Abraham, the children of Abraham, Israel. And if he rejects them, uh, you basically can throw out the Bible. You basically can throw out the whole New Testament, and especially the Old Testament, because all those promises to Israel are in the Old Testament. Israel, yes, most of them reject Christ, but that does not mean that God's promises are null and void. You, you have to remember how God dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. Now, this is not going to be a Sunday morning chat, right? I would never preach this on Sunday morning. Why? Because this is deep Bible study doctrines from the Old Testament that matter for understanding salvation theologically. A lot of people on Sunday, and I, and I don't do this on Sunday because a lot of people on Sunday, they need help with life. How does these things apply to my life? But I do this here on the deep dive because we can take time. We can, you know, eliminate the the stories and eliminate the illustrations, get down into the scriptures and unpack it. Um, and so here's the deal. When God deals with Israel in the Old Testament, he deals with them through covenants. Okay, 
covenants. Covenant is another word for promise or vow or oath, right? It's a promise that God makes to people. He makes promises to Israel that they would be a great nation, that he would, they would be his people, that they would have the land, that they would have a king, that they would be preserved and they would be brought back. And later on in, in the later part of the Old Testament through Zechariah and Amos and other Old Testament prophets, he continually repeats this idea that I'm going to come, I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm not going to reject you forever. I will bring you from the nations to which I have scattered you. I mean, really, really important that you understand those promises that God made to Israel because, because here's why. If his promises to Israel are coming to pass, it proves that God's promises always come to pass, and that means that the promises that he's made to you will come to pass. Like the promise that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's a promise, right? The, the, that if you uh, drink, uh, eat his flesh and drink his blood, you know, you, you participate in the ordinance of communion, the Lord's Supper, you because you're a Christian, you will have life in you. If you abide in Christ, you will bear much fruit. These promises of the new covenant, the promises of Jesus, that uh, he will give you the Holy Spirit and he will gift you and empower you through the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses, new covenantal promises. You can take those to the bank. How about this one? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You like that promise? I like that promise that God was, even when I look bad, God's not done working on me, right? That's a promise that I want to rely on in my dark times as a Christian. How about another promise? Um, Cast all your anxieties upon him for he cares for you, right? Uh, he will never let the righteous be forsaken. Although it's an Old Testament covenant promise, it's also a New Testament application in First Peter and beyond. There's promises in the New Testament to the New Covenant people that are sure because, because, we can see that God held on to his promises from 3,500 years ago. He made promises to Israel with Abraham 3,500 years ago. And, and now we are here. And, and yes, most of those people, the Jews, do reject Christ. But listen, and this is more, very important. Most does not equal all. Most does not equal all. That is that while most Israelites, Jewish people, don't believe in Jesus, that, that does not by any stretch of the imagination mean they all do. Now, to illustrate this, what does Paul do right there in verse 1? He says, for I myself am an Israelite. I'm a Jew. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul was not Catholic. <laughs> I don't even know if he calls himself a Christian. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, the, ter the term Christian, only three times in the New Testament, the more, the more uh, often used term in the New Testament to refer to us is those in Christ or those who believe or those who follow Christ. Anyway, he refers to himself. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant, a biological descendant of Abraham. And then he puts this little qualifier in a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that Saul, uh, Paul, sorry, Paul was called Saul before he was Paul. And I believe that he held on to Saul. A lot of people say he jettisoned the name. I don't think so. That was his Roman. Uh, Paul was his Roman name. Saul was his Jewish name. And Saul, his Jewish name, 
is named after who? The, the first great king of Israel, Saul. And Saul is from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul is like totally playing his Jewish roots here, his Jewish uh, you know, ancestry here to make the point that, hey, I'm saved. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I am in some ways the archetype of the fact that God has not failed in his promise to Israel. Now, here's the facts too. Beyond, beyond Paul slash Saul, there are Jewish Christians all over the world in almost every church. I guarantee you, if you go to your church this weekend, the pastor stands up and says, how many of you are Jews? I guarantee you, hands will go up. How many of you are Jewish? Hands will go up. Not many. Not many by percentage at all, but think about this. The Jewish population of the world is about 0.2% of the population. It's not that large by proportion. So that means if you have a thousand member church, let's say you have a thousand people in your church and two people are Jewish, that is right in line with the greater population of the uh, percentage of Jews in the world. So kind of interesting, right? And I know that I have Jewish Christians in my church. They tell me that they're Jews. Not all of them tell me that they're Jews. It's not like there's something that they're, you know, I don't, I don't think they brag about that because that's a sign that they know that it's not their genealogical heritage that makes them Christian. It's their faith in Christ that makes them Christian, which is a wonderful thing. But the point is we're just trying to unpack something here. And Paul's trying to unpack something that's important for you to apply to your life. God's promises don't fail. Look at me, Paul says, from the tribe of Benjamin, named after the first king, a descendant of Abraham, an Israelite. And if you go to Philippians chapter 3, he says, uh, Pharisee of Pharisees, a, you know, legalistic righteousness, zealous for the law, all those things that I thought were so important. That's who I was. That's who I was. Total Jew to the nth degree. But now I forsake all that and I follow Christ. And this just means, listen, this means that God absolutely has not rejected his people, which he says in verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Foreknew, by the way, can we understand the word foreknew? Uh, I think it's prognosis, if I'm remembering correctly. I don't always write down the Greek words in my notes. But anyway, foreknew, prognosis means that not that he just knew of them ahead of time, but that he chose to put his love upon them beforehand. The illustration of God and his people in the Old and New Testament is often that of a husband and a bride, that a husband typically proposes to his wife, makes the promise at the altar, I'm going to love you. He sets his love upon his bride. Now, the illustration falls apart in our contemporary ideals of marriage because most times we get married because the other person is appealing to us. The other person is beautiful or has some semblance of attractiveness to us. But but God does not do that in ancient Israel. He does not set his love upon Abraham because Abraham was a real good looking dude or Abraham was a um, very moral man or Abraham was really, you know, going to Sunday school regularly. And so God chose to love. Him. No, no. It is his sovereign, his sovereign decision to know Abraham, to set, to choose to set his love upon Abraham uh, before Abraham did anything good or bad. This is how God works in the Old Testament. It's also how God works in the New Testament. But anyway, God has not rejected those whom he foreknew. Then he says this, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And here's Elijah. Remember Elijah, the whining prophet, <laughs> you know, the mighty prophet in first Kings chapter 18 turns into the whining prophet in first Kings chapter 19, when he runs for his life at the threats of Jezebel. Remember that story? And the, and the cry of his heart is, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. Look at, look at Elijah. I'm the only one, God. I'm the only one. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
So too at the present time, there's a remnant, and this is a key line, or this is a key word today, a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What is Paul talking about here? Well, first off, Paul references one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Um, In the time of Elijah, the entire nation had gone apostate except for a a few righteous prophets that um, Obadiah had been hiding in caves and in uh, groups of 50 and feeding them bread and water uh, under the watch of Ahab, a wicked king in Israel. It was the time of Jezebel's uh, vicious reign as Ahab's wife. She was one of the um, priests of Baal's daughters, and Ahab married her. She must have been good looking because she was a crazy person and Ahab still married her. Anyway, um, the nation has been corrupted by false prophets of Baal. They are uh, like what what Elijah says is true. They demolished the altars. They uh, they made the temple impure. They killed the prophets. They were trying to kill uh, um, Elijah, although it was really just Jezebel who was trying to kill Elijah, not everybody. And yet God says, okay, wrong, Elijah. I have how many? 7,000. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Notice how he refers to these people. I have kept for myself. Notice that God does not say, and hear me very carefully. You know, Elijah, that's not true. There are 7,000 people who are still looking to come to me and looking to be good people and looking to be religious. That's not what God testifies to Elijah. God says, I've reserved for myself. I've kept for myself. I have a remnant. And this is a big theme for today. God always has a remnant. God always has a people. Now, why do I bring this up? And it's very important on the heels of yesterday's content from the deep end if you watched that video. And if you haven't, you can go watch it. As I talk on the deep end so often about the darkness of our world, about the craziness of our culture, about the disintegration of um, you know, Christian faith and values in the civil government of our country, as we see the rise of secularism, as we see the numbers of professing Christians decline, the numbers of atheists or, or at least you know, unaffiliated in, incline, as we see that now one out of three Americans claim no spiritual or no religious affiliation whatsoever. Um, it's been darker. <laughs> it's been darker, aka the times of Elijah, where there was only 7,000 people left. 7,000. I want to put that up on the screen one more time. Why? Because how many Israelites came out of Egypt? 600,000 came out of Egypt. And I think it's 600,000 men, which means it was probably 2.3 million total came out of Egypt. And three centuries later, they're down to 7,000 people. 7,000, whoa. My point is, yes, it's dark in America or the cultural West, if you will. Yes, it looks like the the enemy is winning more and more converts, although I don't believe that's the case. I believe it's just people who are nominally affiliated to Christ are now seeing the disadvantages to being affiliated with Christ as the country gets more secular. And so they're just kind of abandoning any kind of affiliation to the faith because it might cost them culturally. And, And my point is, that in spite of all of that, God always has a people reserved for himself. God always has a remnant and he will always have a remnant and he will always have a people. And, and this is so encouraging to me because I don't know if you're like me and let me get a little pastoral here right off the bat, but I tend to worry a lot. 
Anybody out there who likes to worry? Anybody out there? Put your hands up. Give me the little high five emoji in the comments below or to the right if you're a warrior. My wife knows this more than anybody. She bought me this book the other day. Uh, remember these books from the 1980s, 1990s? Um, they were the little, you know, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so books. And she bought me Mr. Worry because I tend to worry about everything. There is a lot of things that I do worry about. And I know I shouldn't worry. And I think that worrying is a sin. And I keep worrying, worrying, worrying. But guess what? Guess what? I never worry about. I never worry about the church. Like the, there's always going to be a church. There's always going to be a, a faithful remnant who love the Lord. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. What he has said will come to pass. His word never returns to, to him void. That's Isaiah 55. It always accomplishes the purpose of which he intended it. Uh, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Let's go back to Romans chapter 11, verse 6 or yeah, no, verse 5. So at the present time, there is a remnant. Now he's talking about Jewish people chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer the base of works. Otherwise, grace would be no longer grace. Um, just a big point there is that the Jewish Christians get saved the same way the Gentile Christians do, by grace. No, Jews do not go to heaven because they're Jews. No, they don't. If they are not in Christ, they are eternally condemned. Same as Gentiles, okay? But if they are saved, they are saved the same way we are, by grace through faith. I was having lunch with a Jewish uh, rabbi, Messianic rabbi, sorry, um, a couple of months ago. I think it was last October or something like that. Sat down with him for lunch. Beautiful story uh, about how he is a practicing uh, Messianic rabbi, and he uh, still practices a lot of the Old Testament feasts, although he's not required to. But he told me his story about how when he first came to Christ, people told him that in order to be a Christian, he had to stop being Jewish. And then he read the Bible. And he realized, wait a second, all the guys that pr propagated this faith were Jewish, right? <laughs> we got to remember that, that originally the Christian faith was a Jewish sect, but they come to Christ the same way we do by grace through faith. Okay, moving on, or I'll get stuck in the weeds here with my conversation in my own head. Verse seven, he says, what then? And whenever Paul says, what then? Remember, he's summarizing his arguments from previous verses. So here's the summary. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, remember last week we talked about that. What was it seeking? It was seeking righteousness apart from Christ. It was seeking its own righteousness, a moral righteousness. So they failed because you're never good enough. No one is good enough. And they got so tied to the law, they ignored the fulfillment of the law, Jesus, when he came. So then it says this, the elect, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect can also refer here to the Jewish remnant, okay? As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they would not see and ears that they would not hear down to this very day. Now, now this line down to this very day very, is, is important because, oh gosh, my writing. If you're wondering why I'm stumbling right here is because I'm writing on the screen on YouTube and I keep making mistakes with my pencil. Although it's not a pencil, it's a finger. <laughs> why am I talking about this? Let me move on. Down to this very day means the, the idea that, that God's people would have eyes but not see and ears that, not hear, that would not hear is repeated all over the Old Testament through the mouths of God's prophets. It's in Isaiah 29, it's in Deuteronomy 29, it's in Isaiah 43, Ezekiel 12, Jeremiah 5, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, again and again. It's like seven times in scripture from seven different mouths, several different mouths. God says these people hear, don't, they, they have ears they don't hear and eyes they don't see. Why do I bring that up? Because there has always been, there has always been historically rebellion in the heart of Israel toward Yahweh. 
<laughs> you, you don't have to get very far in the story of Israel coming out of Egypt before they are engaging in pagan revelry at the foot of the mountain as Moses is getting the Ten Commandments at the top of that mountain. Uh, go through the book of Judges as they continue to rebel. And as soon as God blesses them, they rebel. And there's this vicious cycle of rebellion and res- rescue and rebellion and rescue and re- rebellion and rescue. And then go through the Israelite kings as you see some good kings, but a lot more bad kings. Some good kings and a lot more bad kings. But the point is, is that this rejection of God for Israel is nothing new. This is not a New Testament problem. This is an old covenant problem. They have been hardened and they have had, as he says here, a spirit of stupor given to them from God. By the way, the word stupor refers to the numbness that you get from a bee sting. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes God, God's word stings and numbs us to our need to repent. Just kind of interesting, a warning, word of warning there. But the point here that Paul is talking about is that Israel has always had this horrible track record of trusting Yahweh, trusting Jesus, trusting Adonai, the Lord that has been sent to save them. Okay. And, and, and then he quotes Psalm 69 in verse nine, by the way, Psalm 69 is the most quoted Psalm in the new Testament. It is a messianic Psalm referring completely to Jesus, but at the mouth of David and David is casting dispersions upon his enemies. And he's talking about this, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. He's talking about his own people, the Jews who have turned on him. He's talking about the nation that has rejected him. Now there's question as to when in the life of David did he say these things, Psalm 69, and we don't have a clear answer to that from the text or from historical records. It could be when he was exiled by Saul as he ran for his life, or it could be when he was exiled by Absalom during Absalom's rebellion later in life. We don't know. All we know is that David suffered two exiles, much like the people of Israel, and he cried out against those, his fellow Jews who who were rejecting him. And by doing so, he was fulfilling, or he was actually prophesying what we see happening right now, right now. So read the Old Testament. It's full of Israel rejecting God. It's full of God judging and handing Israel over to her enemies yet constantly preserving a remnant in every generation. You get down to Gideon. He's got 300 men who defeat the hundred, the one million man army of Midianite of the Midianites. And perhaps most profoundly illustrated, as we talked about last week, I think last week, in the life of the prophet Hosea, who marries a prostitute who's working at the shrine temple, okay, selling her body to lovers left, right, and center, Gomer, and God commands Hosea, show your love to her and marry her and produce children. And she has one child with Hosea and then several others through her lovers. And God says, don't give up on her. Go back and show your love to her again. And again and again and again, they have this on again, off again relationship because Hosea is a picture of how God has dealt with Israel down through the eons of history uh, over what, 1500 years pre-Christ history. Rebellion, restoration. Rebellion, restoration. This is how God has worked with them. So all that to say, again, what we see happening in the nation, the people, the biological people of Israel now is nothing new. It's not like this is strange to God. And he's going to use it. 
he's going to use it. Oh, back to Hosea for a second, just to put the reference up there. Because I, I love how the prophets of the Old Testament talk. Like, look in verse 13 of Hosea 2. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me to declare this the Lord. And then the very next verse. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Like, by the way, that's a reference to God, to God bringing them into exile. But it's also, you see the on-again, off-again relationship right there in those back-to-back verses that... They reject me, so I'm going to hand them over. I'm going to hand them over. I'm going to judge them. But I'm also going to go back and allure them and bring them back. This is how God works with Israel. By the way, he will work this out in your life as well. He will come after you. He will He will restore you. When you sin, he won't let you go. Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? This is our hope. Not that we have brought ourselves back, but Jesus doesn't let us go. So time and time again, God uh, pronounces judgment and, and enacts judgment and then pronounces affection and enacts affection upon his people because he always has a remnant. He does this not because, and this is so important that you get this, please, please, please listen in here. God does this not because Israel is cute or attractive or has anything to offer him. He does this because he is faithful to his covenants. Get that in your spirit right now. He does this because he is faithful to his covenants. And we of the new covenant must understand and see his faithfulness in his past covenants to know and rest in his faithfulness to his present covenant, the covenant in Christ's blood. Okay, all the covenants of Israel are listed throughout the uh, Old Testament. And I want to bring them through to you because through, through you, I want to bring you through them because they have great impact on us today. And this is where we kind of get exciting today about this, uh, about this talk. God's covenants with Israel. First, there's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the great nation covenant, Genesis chapter 12, blessing to the nations. Then there's the Mosaic covenant, law, blessing, cursing. Then the land covenant, although that also comes in Genesis 13, but it is ratified in Deuteronomy 30. Then number four, sorry, there's two number threes. Number four, the Davidic covenant, that's that Israel will have a king forever over all. Then number four, five, sorry, Jeremiah, new heart of flesh. That's Jeremiah 31. That's a covenant there. God is going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, he says. Now, here's the cool thing. Every one of those covenants is still coming to pass. (laughs) Every one. How many years ago did God speak to Abraham? 3,500 years ago. Now, if you remember, And I don't know if you do remember this, but I will tell you what happened. In Genesis chapter 15, to uh, seal the deal on the Abrahamic covenant, to ratify the covenant he makes with Abraham, God asks Abraham to participate in this covenantal ritual ceremony from the ancient world. It is where a great king would make a covenant with a lesser king or, or a servant, and they would cut animals in half, put each half of the animals on each side, and they would hold hands and they would walk together between the halves of the animals. So to say to each other, if either of us breaks this agreement, we're going to become like these animals, cut in half. May may the curse on these animals fall on us if we hurt each other's hurt, hurt each other by breaking their covenant or their promise to each other. Well, God does this with Abraham. But if you read the text in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham cuts the animals, the Bible says that there was a long wait and Abraham falls asleep. And as he falls asleep, he sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch go through the animals together. Abraham does not walk through. God does and fulfills the covenant on his half, on his behalf. Why? Because 
God um, is symbolized in that vision by the smoking fire pot, a bread, uh, uh, an oven which produces bread and the flaming torch, the light that God provides to the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus would come later on in John and say, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. I am that flaming torch and that smoking fire pot that walked through with the Lord, with God, to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham. And if you know this, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he is the true son of Abraham. That is on the first text, the first verse of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, so Jesus is prefigured there in that covenantal ceremony. Abraham falls asleep, doesn't walk through, but his son will walk through that covenant for him. And God is making a promise to Abraham and Abraham's seed, Jesus, that his promises and his establishment of Israel will come to pass, no doubt about it. So the, the, the requisite requirements of the covenantal faithfulness fall not on Abraham and his moral works, but on God and his promise that are fulfilled through Abraham's seed. Powerful, powerful, deep stuff. Again, stuff that I don't talk about on like a Sunday morning event in my church, but I will talk about here on the deep dive. Then there's the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Blessing, Cursings, again, like I talked about, and all those kind of things. Um, let's talk about that third, the first third one, even though it should be number, well, that should be number three, <laughs> the Land Covenant. Did you know that every, every world power that has controlled and occupied the land of Israel before Israel in 1947 has become a former world power or lost power? Track it. It's historical. It's in history. It's embedded in the story of history. The Ottoman, uh, the Britain, the British Empire had it before Israel. They're a former world power. The Ottoman Empire had it before them. They're a former world power. The Caliphates before that. The Romans before that. The Greece, the Greeks, the Medes, the Persians, right back to Babylon, Babylonian Empire, which were the people that God used to exercise judgment on the land of Israel in 586 BC. Every world power that has tried to take and seize the land of Israel from Israel is now a former world power. Like, you've got to think about this. And who's sitting in the land right now? Israel. Jewish people. Israel is the size of New Jersey. It makes up less than 1% of the Middle East. But it is surrounded by its enemies all around who want to obliterate it from the map. They have it in their charters that they exist to destroy Israel. Hamas is a political organization in, in uh, uh, the Northern Territory of uh, the Middle East, and they desire to obliterate Israel from the map, and yet they don't. Why? Because the covenant still stands. The land covenant still stands. God is faithful to his word, and what he promised to Abraham he would do. And though that land stood emptied from Jewish official occupancy, uh, from AD 70 all the way to 1947, this is why it's exciting times, my friends. This is why it's exciting times right now. We see Israel not just in the land officially and recognized as a state by the UN and the greater world population, but also defending herself successfully through several wars and attacks and prospering. Look at Israel. someday you'll have to look at, look up Israel's history and see how many wars she has fought and won where she was vastly outnumbered since 1947. In fact, the day I think it was the day after the afternoon after the UN recognized Israel's possession of the land in 1947, they were attacked by the Arab state, the Arab the Arab nations, not state. 
Um, and they defended themselves successfully. The Six-Day War in 1967, where they were vastly outnumbered, and they won that that war. There was the War of Yom Kippur. I believe this is 1973. I'm not sure. Don't don't quote me. But nonetheless, outnumbered. They won that war. This nation that keeps standing, this unbelievable resilience through attack after attack after attack. And now with the most technologically advanced weapons defense system in human history, protecting itself from missiles coming at them in midair. It's called the Iron Dome. This amazing nation how how does that happen because god is faithful to his word because god made a promise to abraham that the land would be theirs forever and it is oh and by the way please 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 do not tell me about oh they just came and occupied land that was already owned by other people nope it has been traced and people have done this they have traced israel's uh, occupancy in the land in some small measure all the way back to ancient Rome. There have always been Jews, just not that many of them, in the land of Israel. And despite what the Romans tried to do, and despite what the Turks and Ottomans tried to do, and, and despite what all these other nations tried to do, Israel has always had some presence in the land, and now it's just, here we are at the last days, and they have official statehood, and they are recognized by the world power that is America, that they are the nation state of Israel, and they have the rights and the liberties and the democracy of a nation state in the land that God promised to Abraham 3,500 years ago. I mean, seriously, you, some of you got to listen to me. You have non-believing friends. You know what one of the greatest proofs, proofs of God's existence is? Israel. <laughs> Israel. They are the only people on the face of the earth who uh, worship the same God, live in the same land, and speak the same language for the last 3,500 years on the earth. <laughs> they still have generational allegiance to Abraham. They still have in some measure the law. They still have the land. They still have, you know, the covenant of David is fulfilled through Jesus Christ, although many of them don't believe it is Jesus. And many of them do believe it is Jesus. And those who do believe in Jesus have that Jeremiah heart that we talked about from covenant number five. Nonetheless, this is why you can trust that God is real. Israel is a literal nation testifying to the faithfulness of the God that they worship and serve. Do you know who the God Marduk is? You don't? God, the God Marduk was a Babylonian God who created all things. Yet no one knows about him. Only religious historians know about him. And even vaguely at that. Ancient people, ancient religion, and, and ancient uh, gods gone but the one ancient people ancient religion and ancient god that's never disappeared and is still here to this day is the god yahweh the god of the people of israel who are still in the same land speaking the same language i mean think about this what other ancient people worship the same god live in the same land and speak the same language for the last 3500 years there absolutely is no one 300 years ago King Louis XIV, the ruler of France, asked the famous Christian philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal to prove the existence of God. Blaise Pascal's response, simple. The Jews, your majesty, the Jews, they are living proof that the God of this Bible is the God of heaven and earth. By the way, did you know that the Hebrew language 
was dead for 1,000 years. Did you know that? Like usually, and this is true in ancient times, when a culture was wiped out by another conquering nation, they eliminated the language because the language kept bound the people together. So they would adopt them into their language and wipe out their other language. Well, the Jews had the scriptures, but they weren't speaking the language of the scriptures. And God made a promise in Zephaniah 3 and in Jeremiah 31 that he would have them restored to pure speech, that they would have the words of the text on their lips again. That's Zephaniah 3, Jeremiah 31. And in the 1950s, Israel was filled with people with all kinds of languages because they were coming from all over the earth to repopulate the land after 1947. And there's this remarkable story of a young man called Eleazar ben Yehuda, who said that he had an inner voice, a vision with an inner voice calling to him saying, revive Israel and its ancient language in the land of their fathers. And that happened in 1877, and he was already living in the land. And so he was already there setting the stage for Israel to readopt their dead language of Hebrew 1,000 years later. Friends, this stuff does not happen in human history. Nations do not occupy the same land 3,500 years later. (laughs) Ancient peoples are... uh, no longer around. There's no Philistines. There's no Assyrians. There's no, you know what I'm talking about? There, there, there's no Philistines in New York City, but there's a whole bunch of Jews. Okay. My point is that if you want proof that God exists, look at the Jewish people. It is, among many other things, a proof that he is who he is and he says what he says and he does what he says. On top of that, and let me get a little bit more involved in this because I really, I prepped this and I wanted to share it with you and I got really excited and I think it's exciting for you to hear. I want to recommend a book to you. It's called Eye to Eye. I put it up on the screen here. It's written by William Koenig. Eye to Eye, uh, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel. And he chronicles the catastrophic events, okay, from 1991 to 2017. And there it is up on the screen. And he says, according to the NOAA, okay, the U.S. has sustained 208 weather and or climate disasters since 1980 in which overall damages or costs reached or exceeded $1 billion based on the 2017 Consumer Price Index adjustments. The total cost of these 208 events exceeds $1.1 trillion. There have been 175 $1 billion events since the Land for Peace efforts began in Madrid, Spain in October 1991. Most of the catastrophes occurred at the time the United States was pressuring Israel to divide their covenant land. The greater pressure on Israel to comply the greater the size and magnitude of the corresponding catastrophe in the United States. And I have been reading this book and I have been flabbergasted by what it details. These 208 weather and climate disasters, mega disasters. I mean, the, the, large, the, the most expensive hurricanes in our history have all occurred in the last 10 years. And it all started in 1991 when the United States tried to pressure Israel to start giving up portions of the land to gain peace from their enemies around them. So they, they give up the West Bank and they give up the Gaza Strip and they give up, oh, by the way, they gave up the Gaza Strip just a few days before Hurricane Katrina. Look that up. It, it, it's amazing to seek. And, and you say, well, why is God holding is, um, America accountable for this? Because America is running the world stage. America is the great world power. It's no longer USSR and America. It's just America. And so America has the power to defend and, and support Israel. And every time they don't, America suffers. Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Sandy, three of the top 10 largest, most catastrophic hurricanes in our history happened within, he talks about this, days and or hours of our federal government trying to pressure Israel to divide its land and surrender it to the Palestinians. Let me get a little bit more political, although some of you get upset when I get political. 
But since 2017, we've had only one single catastrophic hurricane on our coast. It was Hurricane Ida. When did it happen? August 2021. Since 2017. What happened in 2017? Some of you are totally unaware of this. You need to be aware of this because I was in Israel just months after. On December 6th, at the end of the year, in 2017, President Donald Trump officially moved the American embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv, the secular capital, to Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, the religious capital, thus naming Jerusalem or identifying Jerusalem or really not identifying or naming, just recognizing Jerusalem as the true capital of Israel. By the way, President Trump, whether you love him or hate him, is the most pro-Israel tr- president in our history. You say, well, why didn't he win a re-election? First, it's not about him. It's about what he did for Israel. But second, what also happens in 2018? In 2018, the Democrats get power in the Congress and they undermine and impeach this man left, right, and center, oppose him at every turn. And on the heels of his impeachment, one week later, COVID-19 breaks out. COVID-19, this huge global, quote unquote, pandemic. So you can look over the last four years of history and make your own judgments. I know what to believe. I'm just telling you that when we oppose Israel, when we do things or elect leaders that are not for Israel, we pay. By the way, how's it going since the election? (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. And that's it. Now, some people will say back to the land and the covenants. Because these are important, these are important historical things to understand. There are those who say, well, there were people in the land and Israel just comes in after World War II through the UN and through, you know, the Restoration Act and all that kind of stuff. And they just kind of occupy. They become occupiers. They become British colonialists. Shame on them. You know, this is the same argument that America doesn't deserve to exist because we took the land away from the Native Americans. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Mark Twain visited the land in 1867. He wrote a book, The Innocents Abroad, and he described the land of Israel as deserted and desolate. Voltaire visited in 1913, and he called it a hopeless place with nobody in it. And the surrounding nations, or the quote-unquote inhabitants, they weren't even a nation or state when when Jewish people were coming back into the land in the late 1800s, all throughout the early 1900s, before it had been granted statehood by the UN in 1947. Not, Saudi Arabia wasn't created until 1913. Lebanon, 1920. Iraq, 1932. Syria, 1941. The borders of Jordan weren't established until 1946. Kuwait, 1961. So all these people who want to say, oh, Israel came in and they, they uh, just stole the land. That is a lie. They were already migrating in mass numbers from the late 1800s after Mark Twain's visit right through to the early 1900s. And after World War II, where, where they were almost wiped out in Germany, yes, the UN established them as a nation state and um, prophecies from the Bible were fulfilled. It, it's a powerful testimony to God's covenantal promises to Israel. They will have the land forever. And they had to have the land because they have to see Jesus come back to the land on the Mount of Olives in the last day. Otherwise, Zechariah 14 cannot be fulfilled. Zechariah cannot be fulfilled if they don't live in the land. There are all these other end time prophecies that cannot be fulfilled if Israel does not live in the land. And I'm saying all that in the context of Romans chapter 11 to say this, that God has kept every single promise he made to Israel. And that means he will keep every promise that he makes to you. So back to Romans chapter 11. So I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall by no means. In other words, God's not done with them. 
Rather through their trespass. And what is, what, is it, what is God doing with their stumbling right now? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespasses means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So here's the argument that Paul is setting forth here. There is a hardening of Israel, yes, and it is purposeful and it is not permanent. The purpose is to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And it is not purpose, it is not permanent because their inclusion is coming, and that's coming a little bit later. Um, there, uh, then let's discuss this line here so as to make Israel jealous, by the way, that happens in the New Testament on two occasions I can think of right off the top of my head. You can go to Acts chapter uh, 6 where the, um, there's this great moment where the, uh, the peop- the, sorry, the Hebraic uh, widows are getting kind of preferential treatment against the Hellenized widows and they kind of scuffle or they get into a heated argument and then the, the apostles appoint seven deacons to oversee food distribution and it is solved, problem solved through the men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says after that moment that the word of the Lord continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests priests became obedient to the faith. What is that saying? Because the priests saw the church doing the job of priests better than the priests. They became jealous and they became obedient to the faith. There is another passage in in Acts chapter 8 where there is this magician named Simon, a sorcerer named Simon. And it says this in Acts chapter 8 verse 18, when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money. In other words, he was jealous because he saw the power of these Jewish unlearned men through the power of the Holy Spirit and he, and he offers to buy that power and of course Peter rebukes him, right? So you see it already playing out in Acts as Jews are made jealous or enticed with jealousy to come to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Gentiles and those who are unlearned Jews. Uh, the, the, other, the other point that I have to touch on there is about that jealousy, because some of you are going to wrestle with that, like, oh, how could God make someone jealous? Look, jealousy is never bad if it's jealousy for something that you should have. I said this to my church a couple of weeks ago. If my wife goes and cheats on me and I am jealous over her, it is not evil jealousy. It is good husbandry, right? So to God's jealousy over you is good because he wants you and you are made for him. And making Israel jealous through the Gentiles is good because Israel is made for God to bring them back to himself. He is making them jealous through the Gentiles' inclusion. All that to be say, all that to say that there is a purpose to the rejection of Israel right now. There is a purpose to Israel's rejection of God. And the purpose that God is using is to bring you and I into faith. Now, verse 13. I am speaking to you Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles need to hear about this. I am speaking to you Gentiles, Paul says. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I make a big deal out of my ministry. Why? In order that I might somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the lump, if the root is holy, so are the branches. What is Paul doing here? He's speaking to us Gentiles because Paul wants us Gentiles to understand the importance of Israel in salvation history. God's faithfulness to Israel, still in existence, is proof that he will be faithful to us. And he wants us the Gentiles, to honor Israel as the root of our faith, the people through whom faith came. Remember, I already said this, but Christianity was just a Jewish sect for the first 10 years of its history. That God literally has to speak through dreams and visions 
and ultimately the rejection of the Jews to get the gospel to the nations, which again underscores God's sovereignty in election because he will even use those who reject him, okay, to bring about the salvation of others. And okay, people have got to see not salvation from the earth up view, but the but salvation from heaven down view, that God is going to use the good, the bad, and the ugly to save some for himself because God always has a people. Okay, um, will the Jews come back to faith in Yahweh, in, in Messiah? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And that's what Paul says here in the last text that we're going to take a look at. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? In other words, they are going to accept Christ and it's going to be life from the death, life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So what is Paul saying? He's talking about the future redemption of Israel, which uh, Zechariah chapter 12 speaks of. Let me put this up on the screen. Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over firstborn on that day. The morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. Verse 1 of chapter 13 in Zechariah. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and cleanliness. In other words, Israel is coming back to faith in, in Jesus. They will. The nation will receive Jesus. And this, my friends, the closer and closer this comes and the more and more we see it, the, you know that Jesus Christ's return is imminent is eminent. I mean, it's just powerful. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move north and the other half south. They are going to see Jesus in the land and believe on him. Revelation 1.7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, that's the Jews, and all tribes of the earth shall wail on account of him, even so, amen. There is coming a final um, uh, great ingathering, okay, of the Jewish people to faith in Messiah Jesus. It is already happening. My church... Um, on a small measure, my church sponsors One for Israel. This is an outreach program to Jewish people around the world. You can go to One for Israel and look at all the testimonies, these beautiful testimonies of the Jews coming back to Jesus. It is, it is heartwarming. It is, it is beautiful. There is, in my heart, I don't know why, but every time I talk about it, I get a little bit choked up because it are, there is just something wonderfully beautiful about the Jews coming to Jesus. Wonderfully beautiful. And back to the text, I want to point out this idea of first fruits because first fruits is a code word okay he is lifting from the old testament he is lifting from the feast of first fruits which is this um day that inaugurates the harvest that will happen in pentecost 50 days later so you have passover the feast of first fruits 50 days later pentecost harvest that's how it works in the agricultural cycle of israel that is also a picture of how god's uh, global cosmic calendar works in the salvation of the nations and the return of jesus christ so the dough offered as first fruits, that's just a little bit. They would take one sheaf and they would wave it before the Lord in ancient Israel on the day on the feast of first fruits. Fifty days later, Pentecost, all the gathering of the grain and the wheat and the barley, and they would celebrate and they would rejoice. Okay. He's talking about the fact that there is a first fruits now of Israel, himself included, 
one day there's going to be a magnificent harvest and God will bring his nation to himself. That is God's cosmic calendar. Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. Now, here we are on the cosmic calendar. Ready? This is cool. This is really cool. In 1906, a revival happened in the church. An awakening began in Houston and Los Angeles. Actually, really, Kansas and Los Angeles. It was called the Pentecostal Renewal, Pentecostal Awakening. The fullness of the Holy Spirit, people speaking in tongues. And it wasn't just about speaking in tongues or being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Pentecostal Awakening has sent missionaries around the world in numbers never seen before in human history. So for the last 120 years, this awakening has sent countless missionaries all over the earth. In 1900, there were about 5,000 Americans working overseas as Christian missionaries. Fast forward 20 years later, 14 years into the Pentecostal renewal, there were 30,000 Christian missionaries worldwide. That's a six-fold increase. By the way, 30,000 Christian missionaries from America made up 40% of all missionaries around the world. Then I want to put this map on the screen because this is important. Uh, this is uh, a diagram of Christians in 1900 and Christians 2020 by geographical location. Look at where most Christians were in 1900. They were in North America and Europe. Now, 120 years later, after the result of the Pentecostal renewal, where more Christian, Christian missionaries run around the world in, one, in 20 years or in 100 years than any time in history— the global population of Christianity has moved south. It has moved to Latin America, Africa, Asia, Oceania, I mean, Australia. Um, <laughs> my point, friends, is that Christianity is not dying. It is moving. <laughs> God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. I'm just, I get chills when I think about this. This is so powerful. God always has a people. And as America rejects God, he just moves away. Just, All right, I'm going to go to Latin America. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to go to Asia. It's just amazing to see what has happened. By the way, the Pentecostal movement grew from 58 million people in 1970 to 656 million people in 2021. And the global South is home to 86% of all charismatics and Pentecostals in the world. Christianity is not dying. It is moving. This country, which has sent missionaries around the world because of the past, because of the Pentecostal renewal in the 1900s, has now seen that as this uh, country rejects the Christian faith and uh, in uh, in godly symmetry receives the just judgment of rejecting the Christian faith. The Lord has brought the Christian faith to all of these developing nations. And where will those nations be in a hundred years compared to America and the global West? Far better off than us. Far better off than us. Long episode today. Sorry, guys. Let's get to what it means. Let me make these two points real quick. Let me think these two parts real quick. Israel's rejection means our acceptance to God. That's what Paul is saying. The hardening of Israel or their rejection. And again, you want to you want to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You can't. So let's just talk about it from heaven downward perspective. The hardening of Israel at the hand of God has three effects. Number one, it is predicted. God knew it would happen. He knew they would reject his son. That's Acts chapter 2, 22. Peter says, that Jesus was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and you delivered him up according to the define, definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed 
the Lord of glory. All right. So it's not like he was caught off guard that they rejected his son. He knew they would reject him. Number two, it is purposeful. That is to bring the Gentiles in. Um, Tim Keller makes this point. It's a very good point. If the Jews had all received Jesus, think about this. What would Gentiles believe about this Christian faith? They would believe that it was an ethnic faith only for Israelites. But their rejection of it showed that it wasn't an ethnic faith at all. It was a spiritual faith that they could be part of. And that is really a powerful and profound point. The rejection of Jesus by Israel has this practical implication upon the minds of Gentiles who now believe in Christ. Anyway, purposeful. Number three, it's not permanent. There is coming a harvest of Israel in the last days. We're already seeing it around the world globally, and I believe it's happening substantially in Israel right now. All that to say this, there is always a remnant. God always has a people. Do not worry. Do not <laughs> worry about the faith. It's in good hands. The Holy Spirit is at work. Let's talk about why it matters. Why it matters is really what I began this episode with, and that is this, that God has not and will not fail in his promises to Israel. Look at the world. So why would he fail you? Find me a Philistine in New York City. You can't. Okay? <laughs> it's a funny way of saying that God fulfills his promises. The covenant of Christ's blood is just as sure to save you as the Old Testament promises to keep Israel in the land, to uh, keep a descendant of David on the throne forever, to uh, bless them and make them a great nation. They are still a great nation. By the way, do you know that Israel is 0.2% of the world's population, but Israelis have accumulated 30% of the world's Nobel prizes? Uh, they own <laughs> some of the largest companies in the world. They are the most prosperous people on the planet, and it's not even close because God is faithful to his promises. It's not because they're cute. It's because God is faithful. And if he was faithful to them, he will be faithful to you. That's the point. That's why Romans chapter 11, though we like to skip over it, though it seems confusing and we don't get it, it is so powerful. It is so potent. And I want to leave you with one last thought to close out this episode. God has a long-range picture, a long-range view of Israel and his purposes in Israel's life, even their rejection to bring hope for the world. Which means that you should never look at someone else's standing before God and consider it hopeless. Let me put this on the screen. God's long-term picture of Israel's salvation is hope for the person you're praying to know Christ. If God is being patient with Israel and he will one day bring that nation back to himself, who's to say he won't do that for your son, your daughter, your mother, your, child, your, your, your father, your brother, whatever, the person that you're praying to know Christ? And don't get caught up in what you see right now. God will use it. And it will not be permanent. And there is a good chance if you keep praying, 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 praying. Okay. God has laid them on your heart for a reason. Whatever that reason is, pray, pray, pray that God will open their heart and change them. And they will come back to Jesus or they will come to Jesus and they will be saved. Israel is a, I've been saying this over the course of the last three episodes or four episodes on Romans 9, 10, 11. Israel is a test case for what God does in salvation. He never gives up. He, there is always hope. There is always an opportunity for those who seem so hardened to come to know Christ. Think again of Paul the Apostle. No one wanted to be a Christian less than him. No one was more opposed to Christ than him. And yet he was saved, dynamically changed, and, at, and in him is a picture of the hope that we have that Christ can and does have the power to save 
anyone. Praise God. That's the episode, guys. If you would do me solid and like the video, share it or subscribe on youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. Remember that 10 Questions with Tim is the first Thursday of every month, and I don't think that's next Thursday, right? No, it's not next Thursday. It's two Thursdays from now. So get your questions in at Ask at Tim Hatch Live. The Deep End is potentially happening Tuesday. Follow us on our social media accounts so that you will know if the Deep End is happening. I am not entirely sure that it is going to happen. I would love for it to happen. I've got a lot of things happening personally in my life, good things, not bad things. So follow us on social media to make sure that you're always aware of whether or not we're going to do the deep end. I'm thankful that you were here. I love you. May God bless you. Have a great night. 